ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So a word of sickness. Jesus is preaching in Perea when a messenger informs him that Lazarus, a personal friend, is sick unto death. Jesus assures his followers that this illness will not result in death, but is happening to glorify God. He then chooses to wait two days to go to Bethany. Now, this is an odd behavior in one who loves, and the Greek word here is phylos, brotherly love. This is your, your brother from another mother. This is a, a close personal friend. And, and normally, in a close personal friend, you'd expect to put their needs to some extent above your own to take care of them, but he hears that Lazarus is sick and he waits two days. And that might seem odd to us, but remember one of the key teachings from last week, to be a disciple of, your Christ, of Christ, you must hate your family. Christ is putting the needs of God ahead of the needs of his friend. And very much exemplifying that behavior that we talked about last week. There is a purpose to Jesus waiting. After two days, he announces that he's going to go to Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. His disciples push back, knowing that the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. And Jesus responds that work must be done during the day. In a world without electric light, if it was dark, you didn't do work. Certainly not field work. The day is only 12 hours long, and very clearly Jesus is arguing by analogy, much like his parables. He has a set period of time on this earth, and he must accomplish the work his father has set him to do, whether there is opposition or not. He then tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and this was a common term used in the early church after this. They talked about members who had died as going to sleep because they knew, and it was very much in their minds, that Christ could come any day. I think there was a greater expectation that he would come any day back then than there may be today. We, we have a tendency from our perspective, well, he hasn't come in 2,000 years. Yes, he could come any time, but maybe we're not as expectant. 
But they honestly expected Christ to be back 30 or 50 years at most after he left. They would have been quite surprised to find out it's been 2,000. But he tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. They're pleased to hear that because him being able to sleep means he'll recover. Great news. Then Christ tells them flat out, Lazarus is dead. But they're still going to Bethany because Jesus has to wake him up. You've got to know some of the disciples are more than a little confused right now. He also says he's glad that they were not in Bethany. Because what they're about to see will increase their faith. Now it seems the travel from where they were in Perea to Bethany took about two days. Because Jesus delayed two days before leaving. And when he arrives, he's four days after Lazarus has died. Let's talk about that. Please, can we have the next passage? Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So a late, I'm putting it in quotes, arrival. Jesus gets to Bethany four days too late by human perception. Now, Bethany is about two miles, for those of you who don't routinely measure distance in furlongs, from Jerusalem. I wouldn't know a furlong if you hit me with one. Many unbelievers come to comfort Mary and Martha. Um, when you see the term Jews in the Bible, it can mean the Jewish authority figures, or it can mean the unbelieving mass of the Jews, and sometimes it refers to the Jews as a nation, but Always check when you read the word Jews in the Bible, which sense is being used. Because you, you will get confused if you apply the wrong one. Martha goes out to meet Jesus, but Mary stays in the house. Martha has a strong faith, but she seems a little disappointed in Jesus. We, we've all been disappointed in God before, I think, whether that's appropriate or not. She believes that Jesus could have healed him. She states her continuing faith in Christ. She's a little disappointed that her brother died, that he didn't come soon enough, but I still believe. I'm not going to let this jar my faith, is basically her declaration. Jesus declares that Lazarus would rise again. And Martha confirms her faith in the resurrection of the dead, in that she's not a Sadducee. Remember, one of the big relig <laughs> religious, one of the big religious movements of the time. The two big groups, well, three, you got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Sadducees were the pro-Greek uh, version, uh, faction, that's the word I want, the pro-Greek faction. 
And they wanted to Hellenize, to make more Greek, the, all of Israel. And since the Greeks were all about philosophy and explaining things through natural science, they wanted to cut out any supernatural component of their religion. Yes, we have a God. Yes, he loves us very much. But he loves us from kind of over here. Um, he doesn't really get involved. With all that supernatural stuff, no, don't worry about it. He just likes us to worship him. Yeah, because it's, it's the nice thing to do. It's a rather bloodless approach. And ironically, it's most popular among the priests. I always have to think about that one a little bit. The priests. You know, the ones who are supposed to be in charge of worshiping God are rejecting all supernatural. So they don't believe in life after death. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are kind of hyper. They're a reaction to the Hellenization of the Sadducees, and they emphasize the supernatural, and then they go overboard on the rules. And the Essenes, that's it. we'll talk about it a little during this lesson, they don't show up much in the Bible, but they were very much a religious movement of the time, and they were inclined toward almost monastic living. We're going to glorify God by separating ourselves from all the evil of society, and we're going to live our best lives over here, just serving God. Leave us alone, please. Jesus, responding to her declaration, yes, says Martha, I believe Lazarus will rise at the end day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The promise of resurrection is not some distant promise of God. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. Not a distant promise of a present person. Jesus the Christ. On questioning, she agrees that she believes in him as the Christ. Now, we're going to do a little aside here. Who are these people? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, Mary, Greek for the Hebrew, for of. Oh, I didn't catch that. Greek for the Hebrew, Miriam. A very common name. Also a very common name in much of recent U.S. history. Uh, for the hundred years from uh, 1924... to 2024, Mary was the most common name given to girl children for 45 out of those 100 years, and it was the second most common name for like another 30. Not an uncommon name. Uh, Very common. She was the thinker. She seems to be the thinker in the family, the one who ponders things, probably based on the stories that you would guess probably the second eldest. Martha whose name means lady or mistress, lady of the house, Uh, she was the doer, the one who got things done. By her behavior, you'd put her as the eldest child. There's no mention of husbands for either. Apparently, they didn't have any, which suggests they were young, but again, only suggests. um, Their only relative is their brother, Lazarus, who never appears as an authority figure, so he must be even younger. Because he, if he were the eldest, he'd be in charge of the house. But every time they show up, it appears that Martha is in charge of the house. Now, we do have to be careful. We don't want to stretch the scripture beyond what it says. You don't want to be hanging doctrine on a supposition somewhere. They were also well off enough to be able to host Jesus and his disciples. They weren't living in a little hut. They had enough room in their house to host a fair group, and they had enough means to feed that group. 
So, some people think they were Essenes, a sect known for their godly living and withdrawal from society. There is no scriptural evidence of this, so be careful. It's not, not said, but it's certainly not said. You always have to be cautious about the assumptions you make. And again, they're both well-off, able to pro provide hospitality, and well-regarded because many came to mourn. This is why some people thinking they might be Essenes. Yet they were orphaned and independent, so they're kind of unusual. Beware of making theories to explain this. If it were important, God would have revealed it. Okay? So, while it's fine for Richard and I, or Lester, nor any of you, to discuss your opinions and your ideas, if you start hanging theology on it, you got a problem. Because you're hanging theology on a supposition. That's a bad idea. You're going to go the way of John Calvin. So, Mary of Bethany was identified by John as the woman that broke a 300 denarii bottle of spikenard and anointed Jesus with it, washing her feet with her hair. The synoptic gospels don't identify this woman. Remember, they were written earlier. Possibly she wasn't identified out of respect for her. John, writing later, quite possibly after her death, he does identify her as Mary of Bethany. And again, well enough, well enough off to be able to afford a perfume costing most of a year's labors, uh, wages for a laborer. Not cheap perfume. Now, some people want to suggest that Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany are the same person. So first of all, hang on. It's a very common name. Okay? It's not like she was named Edelbrot. <laughs> there were a lot of Marys out there. So right off the bat, I'd be suspicious of that. Now, Mary Magdalene was of Magdala, a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. She had demons cast out of her by Jesus and then later accompanied Jesus on a tour of Galilee earlier in his ministry. And there are people who want to tell this story of Mary of Magdalene being a prostitute who recovers from her lifestyle and goes home and rejoins her sister in Bethany. That's called reading an idea into the Bible. There is no support of this whatsoever. It may be a wonderful, romantic story, but it is fiction. Always beware of reading an idea into the Bible. There is absolutely no biblical support for this. Chances are they were two separate people. Let's keep reading. Please. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit, and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, 
behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? So remember, Jesus and his disciples came four days after Jesus died. Now that four is important. Because by Jewish tradition, three days after somebody died, you brought someone in and inspected the body to make sure they were dead. Because people occasionally slipped into comas. They didn't have modern medical equipment. So someone who looked dead, you came back after three days and made sure they'd started to rot. That's a sure sign they're dead. So this time that Jesus came was after the three-day inspection. So it's not like Jesus raised someone who was only badly sick. This guy was stone-cold, rotting dead. And that's important for people who want to argue about this miracle. Now, after talking with Jesus, remember, Jesus hasn't come into town yet. And it's a small town. Bethany is a relatively small village. Jesus is coming from the east, from Perea, coming in toward Bethany. And he didn't make it into town when Martha met him outside town. And there where he met Martha, she left, went back to her home, let Mary know quietly that Jesus was calling on her. And Mary gets up and bustles out to rejoin Jesus outside the town. When she leaves, all the mourners, all the Jewish people who had come to comfort Mary, <laughs> they assume she's going to the grave because the grave is also not in town. You don't bury people in the town square. You didn't have, you know, the traditional cemetery. And even the traditional cemetery in the old days was outside town. So the grave is outside town. Well, Mary gets up and leaves. All the mourners assume she's going to the grave. So they get up and follow very reasonably. Now, I do want to spend a moment talking about mourning in the Jewish sense. Um, how many of you have gone to a funeral and everyone in the building is wailing at the top of their lungs. Anybody ever seen that? It's not a Western thing. Okay? We think of, uh, of funerals as somber. As My kids hated going to funerals. They found them depressing. Okay? We would, stay, we would stay for the bare minimum time. They'd be like, Dad, we need to go. Dad, Dad we need to go. Dad, we need to go. Now, Christian funerals are supposed to be a joyous time where we remember the person. But still, there's that tendency towards somberness. The family is sad. People want to comfort the family. You don't hear a great deal of, Aah! On the other hand, in a Jewish wedding, it is all about public wailing and mourning. It's a spectacle. As a matter of fact, there were paid performers who would come in and bolster the wailing and the, the, the mourning and how important a person could be measured with a decibel meter. Oh, he was pretty important. My ears hurt. So this is the setting. And it's important to the story. Jesus sees them Mourning. Now, the word in the Greek, I'm going to mangle. I apologize. Klaiousan. Greek tends to stack a lot of vowels next to each other, and you're supposed to sound each one of them out. You want to try that one, brother? Are you better at this one than me? 
This one's a tough one. So we're going to go with Klai uh, Usan. Wailing. Very loud public mourning. Seeing Mary and all these wailing in the presence of death, Jesus is moved in his spirit. Now the Greek word here is very significant. It's enabrimisato. And it actually means indignant or angry. They're wailing. Jesus is angry and troubled. Etaroxen, meaning agitated, meaning, you know, it's, he's, he's coming to a boiling point. Indignantly angry and coming to a boiling point. And he began to weep. Etaroxen which is quietly cry. He's at an emotional state where he is crying, but he's, not, he's certainly not involved in the Jewish wailing. And this description of the word indignant is a very important one. Jesus is not joining in the mourning for Lazarus. Jesus is moved by compassion at the impact of sin in their lives. Jesus is crying because of the curse of death that all humans live under. He's angry at sin. This is godly anger at sin. What Jesus sees is the, the, the curse. Now, does Jesus know the curse exists? Absolutely. He's God. He levied the curse. But this is Jesus as a human being, not just God, as a human being emotionally reacting to the reality of death by sin. That's why he is indignantly angry, agitated, and is weeping. Does that make sense? It's an important point here, guys. It does show Christ's humanity we, we want to look at it from this direction. Jesus is mourning. No, it's coming from a completely different direction. Jesus is God, angry at the curse. And it just so happens he's there to fix that. The crowd, as usual, misunderstands Jesus' tears. They're not for the loss of Mary and Martha. They're for the situation of mankind. And then some people in the crowd start thinking. Jesus had done so many miracles. Jesus loves this family so much. Could he not have prevented this? And that is God's plan. God has maneuvered the circumstances. Jesus stopping outside town. Martha, alone, wanting quiet and, 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 and uh, aloneness in her morning, gets up and rushes out. Everybody misinterprets this. She's going to the grave. Everybody gets up and follows. Everybody is there. And they start thinking, couldn't he have prevented this? The crowd is now primed. They're ready for the miracle. God has the crowd right where he wants them. Let's go to the next passage, please. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees, and told them what things Jesus had done. So Jesus comes to the grave mouth, still troubled by the grief around him. And he tells them to move away the stone. But, 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 but he stinks, Lord. Anybody encountered the fully developed stench of death in an enclosed place? It's not very pleasant. Um, there was a project problem at Air Products while I was there, and the net result was about 14 dead rats inside the walls of a building. And they had to cut the walls to remove the animals. But they cleared the building for a week to try to get the smell to dissipate, and I didn't know. I walked into the building looking for someone. Um, almost knocked me over. Um, this, he's been dead for four days. That miasma had formed inside the cave, and when they rolled the stone away, it came rolling out to join them. Jesus says, don't worry about the stink. You're about to see the glory of God revealed. And Jesus then prays a very direct and personal, one of the most direct and personal prayers that's recorded to God, acknowledging God publicly so the crowd will understand it's not just him, it's God the Father doing this miracle. And at Jesus' command, Lazarus comes hobbling out. Now his arms are going to be something like this and bound his feet are going to be bound, so he's either hobbling or hopping. He's got an arcan over his face. From one perspective, he looks ridiculous. And there's, I think there's, a, there's great comedy in this moment, but there's awe. There is no question this man was dead. And like that, he's alive. And he doesn't struggle to his feet. He comes out as best he's able. He would have strode. He would have danced out of there if he weren't bound by the, the, the funeral trappings. This was all the crowd, proof that most of that crowd needed. And they believed on Christ then and there. They'd been put into a state of readiness. They see this incredible miracle and they believe. Now Christ had previously healed very sick, arguably dead people before, but not ones that have been dead for four days. Um, in particular, the widow's son up in Galilee by the city of Nain was just being taken out to the grave. And while I believe that man was, that man was dead, he wasn't demonstrably dead. 
it hadn't been long enough for him to stink. Now, even so, not all believed. Some went to tattle. Let's, now, let's spend, spend a moment just quickly talking about spiritual resurrection. We're born with a sin nature and are therefore dead to God spiritually. We all face death from the curse of sin, physically. And we are as helpless in our dead condition as Lazarus was in his. There was nothing Lazarus was going to do to come back. The best he could manage was put up a stink. We're similarly helpless. Our resurrection happens through the power of God in the same way that his power raised Lazarus physically. And our spiritual resurrection is supposed to bring glory to God through our future good works in the same way that Lazarus' resurrection brought glory to God. If we look in John chapter 10, 5 through 25 through 28, Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. As Lazarus was called out of the grave by name, we are called to new life in Christ by name, by God. It's a personal transaction. Nobody else can do it for us. Last passage, please, ma'am. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Give me a moment. I meant to talk about this earlier. I'm going to page back to the beginning of this. So Ephraim. Did that zoom? Yes, it did. Ephraim is underlined in green there. We're not 100% sure where it is, but it's supposed you notice it's north and a little east of Jerusalem, almost due north of Bethany. It's up in the hill country, and I don't mean the Texas hill country. This was the rough portion of Judea that was less occupied, kind of mountainous, more herdsmen. Jesus left Bethany and went up to Ephraim for a while. Oh, that didn't go well. Let me go back. Okay, the Pharisees see 
great danger in Christ raising Lazarus. This is living proof of Jesus' power. And he's nearby. He's just two miles from Jerusalem. Anyone can go out and meet this guy. And there are a lot of witnesses. But their focus is still political. Everyone's going to believe in him. And we will be removed by the Romans. Now, there's a, there's a step in that logic that's not obvious to us. Okay? You have to remember the background. Did the Jews love the Romans? No, they hated them. And it was a given among the Jews that God would send a Messiah. And that Messiah would free them from the Romans, would kick out the Romans... They were looking for a political savior. They were looking for a military savior. They wanted to make somebody king. So if everyone believes that Jesus is the Messiah, there's going to be a revolution across Israel, and Rome's going to come in and take everyone out of office who's in office, and maybe, maybe not kill them just on on principle. So their focus is political. If people believe there will be an uprising, Rome will come in and we will be removed and possibly our nation destroyed. That's their focus. Now Joseph Caiaphas, we know him in history through Caiaphas, but he had a given name and it wasn't Caiaphas, it was Joseph. The son-in-law of Annas was the appointed high priest. Was he a son of Aaron? No. Do we know he was a Levite? No. He was a political appointee. And this had been reality since the Romans had come in. But he is the high priest at that point. And he says, what are you guys worried about? It's only one guy. We can fix this problem real easy. Better one man die than the whole nation have a problem. And John says that he prophesied in this. Because that was God's intent all along. One man would die for all of humanity's sins. And God has used the ungodly before. And there's no question, Joseph Caiaphas was not a godly man. From that day, the Sanhedrin, which is the the ruling body, which Caiaphas had spoken before on that day, they gathered the Sanhedrin together. They actively planned to kill Jesus. It went from, it would be convenient if he died... Will, one, will, will not someone rid me of this turbulent prophet? To, we're going to kill this guy. That's it. This, that is the last straw. So Jesus, as we said, went to Ephraim, about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem, up in the hill country. The Passover's coming. And Jesus is the topic of conversation. For three years, God has managed what I have to view as a media campaign. He has made Jesus the subject of discussion. For one year, Jesus becomes famous. For another year, Jesus does a great deal of teaching and many miracles. And the third year is all focused on his eventual death. And everything is building to a fever pitch. And there is one topic of conversation. They know the Pharisees have a price on his head. Will he show up? It's the, where is he? We haven't seen him in a week or several weeks. What's going on? Where's Jesus? We're going to talk more about that 
actually in the next section. But make no mistake, God made Jesus the center of all discussion in Palestine at this time. So, two application questions. How does the world, that is the enemies of God, seek to quiet or cover up the witness that a Christian has regarding their resurrection from spiritual death? 